Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of Media Sandwich. Uh, This is a podcast where we comb the internet for headlines regarding the latest bits of entertainment news and ephemera going on, and uh, just kind of take a look at it and see what's up. Uh, I I am the person who takes you through that. My name is Kyle Martinak, and I've got some stuff to talk about this week. Some of it's fun. Some of it, not so fun. <laughs> Which would describe pretty much everything, right? Um, well, let's talk about video games. Those are fun, right? Well, <laughs> well, here's the thing. I've mentioned Hogwarts Legacy several times on this podcast uh, in the last few months. At one point I said, you know what? If you want to play the Ding Dong Wizard video game, it's fine. It's not a crime. The transphobic narcissist jackass has already been paid her millions of dollars for it. You buying a copy is probably not going to hurt things. And then a few weeks later, I was like, you know what? Don't give your money to it. Um, (laughs) Because not just the creator of the wizarding world of Harry Potter, uh, but the actual game itself sounds pretty, pretty gross. Because that's when we were hearing about the plot of the game which kind of reminded me oh yeah there's some things inside that uh canon that world that are a little weird a little creepy a little uh circumspect um so that just goes to show you this podcast is fair and balanced (laughs) we will we'll uh we'll take the side the either side of the situation depending on how i feel that day and today okay Hogwarts Legacy, after being given one final little baby delay to their release this uh, this week, uh, it actually is releasing, uh, supposed to release on Friday, February 10th. We're already almost midway through February already. I swear to God it was Groundhog Day yesterday. Uh, I'm wrong, though. But yeah, Hogwarts Legacy is coming out this week, and it has a review... That has come out. (laughs) A review. It's very strange. There's a video game coming in four days. One of the most hotly anticipated games of the last, like, two years. It has one review. Most of the major video game sites have nothing up about it as of today, Monday. I don't know if they're waiting for further into the week or if they've just decided not to give it any coverage at all. Um... At least one of those other sites has, like, their roundup video for the week about the releases that are coming out. And it's this week it's titled, What's Coming Out This Week That Isn't Hogwarts? So, yeah. Um, A lot of complaints about uh, Hogwarts Legacy being a thing that's happening right now. So a lot of the video game sites don't really want to give it air. But... IGN does. IGN has at least one writer who decided to do so. So I thought, hey, I'm going to read that review and give you, my listeners, the quick skinny on that game so that you don't have to give IGN an extra click. Uh, Because I don't think they need it. I want to start by saying the review begins, quote, I've been waiting for a good Harry Potter game since the third grade. And even though that's not much of a disparity in age between me and the person writing this, it still made me crumble into dust. I think we started getting Harry Potter games around the moment we started getting the Potter movies, right? So roughly 
I want to say a few months on either side of 9-11, somewhere in there. Uh, that's over 20 years ago, though, and I am an old man. I am an old, old man. Uh, <laughs> but anyways, this review from this younger person, younger than me, uh, the review's pretty glowing, but it also oddly stops dead right in the middle of reviewing the game and has this boxed paragraph uh, graphic thing inserted right in the middle, which is a disclaimer. Uh, it's a disclaimer kind of box that starts with big bold letters saying, Concerning J.K. Rowling. Um, clearly the editors at IGN are trying desperately to provide a fulcrum with which to balance out the endorsement of this controversial piece of video game entertainment. And the box, uh, this, this box essentially acknowledges the elephant in the room and acknowledges the boycott of the Wizard World products that's made this game a big deal in headlines of late. And then this disclaimer box essentially concludes by excusing IGN from that discussion entirely by saying, you know, it says this, um, basically I'm paraphrasing here. This isn't direct quote as critics. Our job is to discuss the game as a game, as in, is it fun to play? Whether it is, this is a quote, whether it is ethical to play it is an entirely different and equally important question. End quote. Um, <laughs> it's a very, it's an entirely different and equally important question, uh, whether or not it's ethical to play Hogwarts Legacy. But that ain't a question that they're going to attempt to answer. Um, <laughs> but, and, and very funny, earlier in the same box, just, just above that very brave stance, they link to past articles that go into detail about how Rowling isn't directly involved with this game, and Avalanche, the studio making it, quote, allows for transgender players. Which literally means nothing. It means your customizable main character can have any voice track, the traditionally masculine or traditionally feminine voice tracks, and be referred to as a witch or wizard, regardless of the appearance choices that you make during character construction. Not quite the bold stance that it sounds like in the headline, where it says, it allows for transgender players. Well, technically any video game allows for transgender players, because a transgender person can play whatever damn video game they want to, unless you explicitly say they can't. So... That's not really, that doesn't really mean anything. It basically means that transgender people are still allowed to exist, technically, uh, within the world of Harry Potter. Great, grand, wonderful, Bra brave stuff. Thank you very much for that. I mean, I guess it's a good thing, but it, boy, really fishing for praise in one, allowing trans people to exist in your virtual fantasy world despite the creator's relentless pursuit of transphobia, and then two, you know, doing it essentially by just not locking in traditional gender options together. What a weird way to tackle the realities of playing this game, though, IGN, in basically stating, well, we're just going to play the game and review the game, but only after acknowledging that we could address the bigger issues, but we're deciding not to because we're game critics and we need to play the game and review it. But... Anyway, yeah, here's some articles about how it's probably okay to play the game. Um, that kind of seems like an endorsement to me. 
uh, in the words of my, my beloved Rush, if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. And further, acknowledging one choice as being okay and just not choosing to discuss the other choice, that being to boycott and to stop giving your money to J.K. Rowling, this is an endorsement of the game. Not just the review, but this weird disclaimer box. Anyway, that's a lot of that's a lot of talk basically to say that IGN says it's perfectly fine for you to play this game. That's their stance. They just don't want to say that. And also, apparently, nobody else wanted to write about it other than this guy. We'll get into that later. Talking about the actual review. Performance-wise, it's not too surprising. The game feels unfinished, buggy, herky-jerky to the writer. Um, frame rate issues, pop-in problems, lighting problems long loading screens, even though we were supposed to be done with loading screens in the era of PS5, and just not not terribly impressive visuals considering the amount of work and the amount of uh, stuff that went into this game's existence. So, yeah. Having said that, it's apparently a very huge map with a lot of moving parts to it, a lot of active diversions and whatnot, you can customize your room, you can practice potion brewing and gardening, and there's a wizard fight club, uh, you can go shopping in town, it's a massive, massive game. Uh, it's easy to see why Avalanche kept bumping back the release date, and maybe why they should have done so at least one more time, uh, but I think this was like their... their rock was they had to get it out uh, quarter one of the calendar year, or quarter four of their financial year if it happens to be i know that a lot of companies start their financial year in march in the video game industry so if their deadline was february that makes sense right um one thing that is glaringly missing from the game that they do acknowledge in the review quidditch uh quidditch is just totally not in the game and really you know that sounds like a big whoopsie doodle right now but I know the game industry and how they operate, and you do too. If you if you happen to be a big old fan of this world and you gotta play this game and you're worried that you can't play Quidditch in this game, don't even worry about it. You will have full access to Quidditch next year <clears throat> after they've finished that portion of the game and <laughs> it'll only cost you the price of a season pass or better yet, a monthly subscription, right? How long is a Quidditch season, by the way, in the universe of Harry Potter? Is it like a hockey season? Like, is it a full nine months out of the year or something like that? Or is it just during... It can't be just during the nice months outside, because I know in the movies, at least, they're playing in rain, shine, tidal wave, whatever. Um, most of my Harry Potter knowledge comes from the movies, because I, I just... I, I can't be bothered to dive into anything beyond one read of read through of the books and then a semi semi uh, occasional viewing of one of the movies. But anyway, uh, the combat of Hogwarts Legacy is praised quite a bit in this review. You'd think that a Harry Potter game would suffer from just being like the repetitive bolts of brightly colored energy shooting out of your magic wand over and over again. But this game apparently has a great system. Uh, it's got skill trees, encourages a lot of timing and combo work. Uh, a lot of there's a parry function, 
So it kind of has a nuance to it, and, and you are forced to change your tactics when encountering different enemy variants. Uh, some of them have immunities to certain spells and effects. That sounds kind of fun. Um, there isn't much in the way of enemy variety. That was something that got, cropped up in this review over and over again, is that there's just not enough variety of enemies. You're basically limited to goblins, dark wizards, and spiders. Lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of spiders from the sound of things. But yeah, I mean, that all of that put together, the good and the bad of the combat, uh, makes it sound a lot like a Harry Potter spin on what Jedi Fallen Order accomplished in terms of combat, and just as potentially challenging, too, according to the writer. Uh, yeah, um, the plot stinks. <laughs> the plot just unabashedly uh, is overly simplistic and just kind of crap, and it's conveyed to you in the most uh, rote, mechanical way possible. Uh, apparently a lot of the plot is blabbed at you via dead wizards residing in the castle's paintings. You know how the paintings move and stuff like that. That just sounds miserable, like old men in paint in oil paintings, like telling you, hundreds of years ago, the goblins decided they wanted independence from the wizarding world, and I'm asleep already. Um, it also means that a ton of the side quests littered throughout the game are kind of your standard, go here, get this thing, maybe fight this dude or this spider and come back for a reward. You know, chores, fetch quests. Now, I speak derisively, but I am a huge fan of the original Borderlands game, and that's quite literally that entire game, but with really good uh, combat and gameplay, uh, and RPG elements mixed in, too. Anyway, we all heard about the uh, <clears throat> evil goblin villain and his goblin uprising, and... Just It's pretty weird to create more racial tension in this wizard world than what we already have. And there's already uncomfortable ethnic parallels going on in that world with the house elves and all that stuff. Um, your By the way, the, the game takes place like a hundred years before the Harry Potter movies or something like that. So like pre-Dumbledore and Grin Grindelwald and I've never seen any of that stuff. Those weird prequel movies that are happening. So I don't know any of that. But, uh, yeah, so house elves are a thing that you might be able to own in this game, I think? I thought I heard that somewhere, but not in this review. Um, your character transfers to Hogwarts as a fifth year, presumably to circumvent all the established rules that apply to first years in the canon. Like, hey, you're not allowed to go outside of the castle walls. Hey, you're not allowed to practice combat spells. Hey, you're not allowed to do first years can't do shit, right? So they got to update it to like the point where you're almost an adult, right about the time that Harry Potter and his friends started actually like doing combat and existing in the world as viable, like soldiers in the fight against evil and stuff right about the fifth year. And it also probably you're a fifth year to dispense with hours and hours of gameplay where you have to learn the bare basic things like how to, you know, use your wand as a flashlight, stuff like that. It's kind of like Knights of the Old Republic, how most of your Jedi training just kind of happens in a cutscene montage so that you don't have to, like, hit the button to meditate or stuff like that, because um, that's boring. But your character apparently is also... 
Oh boy. I mean, some kind of chosen one element with you have some extra special powers that only apply to you. Cause yeah, cause that's how, that's how, that's how lazy these things are at this point. From what I know of it, I think I'm giving this plot a resounding PU, uh, sight unseen. I know that I'm, I'm being completely unfair because I haven't played the game. I'm going off of this review, but um, in contrast to uh, this writer's uh, not being impressed by the plot, uh, the characters that you interact with are supposed to be wonderful and really do a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of immersing a player, uh, harnessing that Hogwarts classmate camaraderie that makes the notion of living in this world potentially kind of fun. Yeah, having not played the game and, and honestly not planning to, the impression I get from this review is that if you're a real diehard Harry Potter fan, then this is the game that you've been waiting for. For years. If you're not, this is probably just a game. Like a, like a perfectly acceptable quality of game, but not terribly remarkable. Certainly not like a mind-blowing experience that supersedes the ick factor attached to it. Um, yeah, not a revolutionary thing, this game, from the sounds of it. I'm not trashing on the reviewer, though, uh, Travis Northrup, for liking the game. It was a uh, pretty resounding, yes, this game rocks. I liked it. I enjoyed it. He played like 32 hours of it because he kept getting sidetracked with the extra stuff that you can do outside of the main uh, storyline. So he dug it. And I can't trash on somebody. It's okay to like a video game, even a game that might give, you know, some money to J.K. Rowling. That's your taste. I'm not going to yuck people's yums, as as the kids say, or probably don't say anymore. I will trash on old Travis a little bit um, for apparently boasting on a podcast at some point the last few days that the only reason he did this review at all was because no one else would touch it. Like, like everyone was so scared to put their name on a review instead of just the the more Occam's razor thing of not enough nobody cared enough about it to attach their name to a review that's probably gonna see some aggression because of the game and the ugliness I will say um I don't read the IGN I don't read IGN at all uh that often so I was surprised to see they still have comment threads on their articles and I looked at the comments and I looked at the comments and the comments looked at me. <laughs> I looked at the trap, Ray. <laughs> the comments on this video game review were putrid, really bad, just disgusting. 40 something dude in his truck with wraparound sunglasses style takes, you know, about pronouns and shit. Like people really just can't handle that, can they? It's 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 just like a, a mental block people have about that stuff. It, it angers them, just the notion of it. Ugh, please excuse me while I go take a shower. I read IGN comments. That's all I had for video games was, look, that's the big game coming out this week. It's kind of like, that's the, that's the avatar, the way of water of video games for this month. Don't expect any other huge-ass games to come out in February because they all expect to be trounced by the wizard shit. Uh, I think we should stop calling it the wizarding world uh, and just call it the wizard shit. Um, but we all know wizard shit is irrelevant because they magic away their poops. 
I'll never get over that weird-ass detail, and I think a lot of the internet never will either. What a strange person who comes up with that question that no one asked, and then that answer that nobody wanted. Uh, (laughs) I really gotta get off of this Harry Potter kick. Uh, Let's shift gears and talk about movies for a hot minute. Uh, First off, just in the housekeeping of box office receipts for this last week, it's worth noting, speaking of Avatar The Way of Water, it has finally been dropped off its pedestal from being the number one movie. Um, This was uh, Avatar The Way of Water's eighth week, and it dropped all the way from first place down to third place. (laughs) Um, And still made $10 million domestic. Holy crap a Um, but yeah, folks were in the mood for a spooky this last week, and they went to see Knock at the Cabin, the new M. Night Shyamalan movie starring Dave Bautista and Harry Potter's, uh, Rupert Grint. Uh, both guys in roles that I'm sure they've been waiting years to play, roles that have nothing to do with Drax the Destroyer or Ron Weasley, and so far away from those roles that people won't recognize them from what I'm told. Uh, I haven't seen it yet, unfortunately. I'm probably going to check it out later this week. I'm taking a Ferris Bueller day from work, uh, and a matinee, I think, is in my future. So that that's probably what I'm going to go see. Uh, it did pretty well. Knock at the Cabin uh, opened at about $14 million, which is pretty good. It only cost about $20 million, uh, you know, before marketing and whatnot. So $14 million's pretty good opening. I think it'll do pretty well. Uh, the number two movie this week sure looks like a number two to me, I'll tell you that. Um, 80 for Brady. You can tell this is one of those comedies that'll make your eye twitch because most of the conceptual energy went into that title, and then that was kind of... We're done for the day. (laughs) Zing! That's the end of the day. We came up with the title. 80 for Brady. Uh, you know what may you know who makes a great comedic actor in a studio movie is an aging NFL star, especially when he's surrounded by legendary actresses who are all taking an easy paycheck role in a limp comedy about a limp comedy about hey when you're old but you still got it. Uh, yeah, twelve million dollar opening. Against a surprisingly lean $28 million budget. That's great. That's just great. The movie industry is just bleeding out, creatively speaking, like like Tim Roth and Reservoir Dogs. And there are some of us who are standing over it, just hovering, going, You're gonna be okay! But we all know it's a lie. Um, <laughs> anyways, speaking of Avatar The Way of Water, um... A little bit of news as far as those movies go. We got a few new details as to where that juggernaut is headed. We already know that the third movie has a Christmas 2024 release date, which... That's so jarring to me, to wait 14 years in between the first and second movies, and then suddenly just a two-year turnaround time on the third. I I realize that they were all, you know, two and three were shot together, like, like, you know, things like that have been happening for quite a while now. The Pirates of the Caribbean sequels kind of, uh, they didn't invent it, but they championed it. I think Back to the Future 2 and 3 were the ones that might have invented that. But uh, the in the modern sense, Pirates of the Caribbean 2 and 3 made that a thing uh, that, that studios are still doing. 
But uh, yeah, that's not even taking into account that we're talking about James one movie per decade. If you're lucky, Cameron, that guy's doing two movies in a matter of four years. That's that's weird. That's very strange to hear. But anyways, on the casting front and the plot development, uh, plot development development. (laughs) I've had too much caffeine. Um, We've heard that Una Chaplin will be coming aboard to play a new third variant of the Navi aliens, uh, the Ash people. Uh, She's going to be the primary antagonist of the third movie, and uh, she's going to be from a a tribe of Ash people. So in keeping with the hilariously parallel formula to the other Avatar franchise, The Last Airbender, um, we seem to be trafficking in elements. We had Earth people, then water people, and now we're going to be hanging out with... Navi who live in a volcanic setting, so kind of fire people. And just like the other Avatar, the last airbender, the fire people are pegged as the bad people. Um, The inexplicably kind of evil tribe of the, you know, mostly kind of chill other tribes. The the Slytherins, if you will. (laughs) I'm sorry, I gotta stop, I gotta stop. I bring up that wizard shit. Uh, just, just to annoy you, dear listener, but also to illustrate how difficult it seems for industry creatives, even the massively talented ones, to get out of this weird format where all the bad people in a fantasy society are lumped together in one corner space. Um, you know what I mean? Uh, as if being a shithead is something that just happens purely through osmosis. Like, you, you got you got to sit over there with the other shitheads, and then you'll just be shitheads for the rest of your lives, and we just have to deal with the fact that a quarter of our society are shitheads until you turn on us, in which case we'll turn on you. Um, that's how society works, right? There's definitely no shitheads in the good guy section of the, the dormitories or whatever. Uh, I don't know, I just hate that. It bugs me. It's, a, it's, it's lazy writing. It's lazy world building, uh, let me uh, rephrase. Uh, but anyway, Una Chaplin, uh, you might remember her as uh, Talisa from Game of Thrones. Who? Talisa who? Well, um, <clears throat> Rob Stark's wife, a.k.a. the bride at the infamous Red Wedding. So she wasn't on the show for very long. Uh, but <laughs> anyways... The more interesting news to me about all this Avatar sequel talk is that Avatar 4, we did hear, will be having a massive time jump, which makes sense because all the characters from 2 and 3 are probably going to be a lot older by the time we get to 4, and that way we can shoot more footage of that, you know, the poor guy who has to play a human, so he's actually going to age on camera. Um, Not to mention, you know, they can't lock down... Sigourney Weaver for four and five she's in her mid-70s she might not be up to holding her breath underwater for six minutes or other shit like that right so you know they can do a massive time jump and then we don't have to worry about those characters because they'll probably you know it'll probably be their kids who are starring in four and five uh five by the way this is the biggest piece of news avatar five the plot is that uh, the Navi will actually come to Earth. So, 
you know, it, it is starting to look like Cameron actually had a plan all along to make this franchise expand from one easily digested, if a little overly long, standalone adventure film to more of like an era-spanning tale of stuff like evolution and family legacy and whatnot. It's a saga. The dude's making his own saga, which... Okay, you know, that's cool. Uh, another piece of movie news, getting away from Avatar. This this news is on the exhibition end of the industry. AMC Theaters, in trying their damnedest to make uh, going to the movies that much more needlessly painful, they decided to add price tiers to their ticket prices based on your seat's proximity and view of the screen. Yeah, so... Now there are going to be three different price tiers after 4 p.m. showings. So it doesn't affect my matinee loving ass, but uh, for primetime showings, uh, there are going to be tickets for value sight lines, standard sight lines, and preferred sight lines. And, you know, in ascending order there, value, of course, will be the least expensive and the crappiest seats. And by the way, least expensive, but probably no less expensive than a standard ticket costs now, right? Because that's how that works. They're going to add a premium for sitting in a better seat in the theater for a movie you've already paid a ticket for. So, you know, value seats will be the front row seats that no one wants. Standard will be like in the middle of the room, but on the sides and aisles so that the screen's kind of cockeyed. And then preferred will be smack in the middle of the auditorium where everybody, you know, everybody claims those first, right? Now, this is just the latest thing. It, like, I really didn't like it when they started adding assigned seating. Part of the fun of going to the movies used to be buy your ticket, go in there, what seats are free? You know, where do you want to sit? Where do you want to sit, hun? Like, you know, you want to sit in the middle? Let's, let's race to the middle. Uh, do you want to sit in the back? Do you want to sit in the middle of the back so that nobody can see us necking? That kind of shit, you know? That kind of shit's gone because you have to buy your tickets three days in advance. Otherwise, you're sitting up front for Avatar The Way of Water. And that's what I had to do with my young children, who handled it remarkably well, considering. But I had aches and pains afterwards. <laughs> and now, uh, yeah, now I have to pay an extra convenience fee to, to not have those aches and pains. Wonderful. Thank you, AMC. Um, yeah, their justification for this is, well, hey, this is more in keeping with the way tickets are sold for other entertainment events and venues, like concerts and sports events and Broadway shows, right? Yeah. Hey, AMC, you know how people talk today all the time about how inaccessible Broadway shows are to non-rich people? Why do the movies have to head in that direction? Pretty soon, the only way to see, like, Avatar 6 or 7 will be to snipe tickets online the, you know, at 12.01 at a.m. for a $500 seat per person, paying convenience fees and processing fees along the way, and before you know it, you know, in order to go see a friggin' Marvel movie, it'll have the same cost value of a Beyonce concert. Gr <laughs> Isn't business grand? So absolutely grand. Ah, uh, fuck you, AMC, you greedy pieces of shit. Uh, I hate this, and I hate I hate the fact that the movie industry has to be this way. When I was a kid, you could go to the movies for five dollars. 
you couldn't get a popcorn. You couldn't, you know, you you couldn't see a 3D movie. They didn't really exist when I was a kid. But the more the more bells and whistles and things that you can add as extras, pretty soon just to go see a regular ass 2D movie past 4 p.m., it's going to end up costing you $20 per person. And it's horseshit. It doesn't have to be that way. But they can, so they will. Uh, just like my cat, if it fits, they sit. Um, that didn't make a lot of sense. But let's talk about comic books. Um, yeah, <laughs> okay. We're talking about comic books, but am I cheating here a little bit? Maybe. I'm going to be talking about James Gunn and his big, giant DCU tease that he put out this last week. I'm not going to go all the way up and down the list of things that he announced. We'd be here forever and uh, I just don't really want to do that. I, You look it up. You see all the different things. I'm sure you already have. Um, this is just about the comic books right now, believe it or not. You see, the thing about why James Gunn got the job to be the Feige of DC is because, number one, well, he's a household name that people respect uh, in terms of making superhero movies. He's, simply put, he's bona fide, you know? He's bona fide. Uh, <laughs> little O brother, where art thou? Uh, number two, James Gunn kind of hit the Suicide Squad out of the park for WB a couple years ago. I know people try to tell you that movie flopped, but look, it came out in 2021 with a same day streaming release on HBO Max, and it was the sequel to a just a like a non movie, just a real piece of trash that I don't think qualifies legally speaking as a movie. Because it was more like 40 minutes of trailers for individual movies for each character. And then like, you know, 35 minutes of goopy nonsense. But from a fan and a critic standpoint, uh, he nailed that movie. And uh, Warner Brothers Discovery recognized what James Gunn can do when he's handed a pile of garbage and told to spin it into something usable. So that's why they gave him the job. Uh, but also, the, th the third thing that's most relevant to our comic book slot of the podcast when talking about James Gunn getting this job, he's popular among the fans because he's as much of a comic book reader as any of them are. And he's also more of a writer-director than a director-producer. So he's a little bit more about the storytelling, about the characters, and about the comic books themselves as a medium that he's drawing from. Not only did he unzip and flop out his plans for the first two years of like a 10 year slate. He also cited his sources on this. He named specific comic books that would serve as inspiration for several of the first projects coming up on his DC plans. And because those books were mentioned, and here's where we get into actually talking about comic books, because those books were mentioned, Fans who are excited about this brave new world of an on-screen DC universe that, you know, actually connects to each other and follows a bigger connected story, they wanted to do some advanced reading to get up to speed. How do I know that? How do I know that fans got excited and started doing some reading? Amazon's list of best-selling graphic novels suddenly got some older titles that were the subjects of some of these announcements. Chiefly speaking... Uh, Grant Morrison's All-Star Superman, which is a truly mm, mwah, terrific, terrific book. One of, I would say, the top top 10 Superman stories, really, uh, in the history of the character. 
uh, that might be a bold statement, but I'm saying it. Grant Morrison's All-Star Superman, one of the top 10 versions of Superman there is. Um, and then also Grant Morrison's very, very different kind of like, I almost want to say cerebral take on Batman. Like he, Grant Morrison has a very odd concept of who Batman is. Uh, but that, that version of Batman also made it onto the bestseller list just this last week. And also, uh, Alan Moore's much beloved take on Swamp Thing, uh, which, ugh, ooh, wonderful comic books, wonderful storytelling, just fantastic writing from that weird kooky guy. Um, but yeah, the most conspicuous of these, though, that, that were mentioned by Gunn, and suddenly rose to the top, like, 15 graphic novels on Amazon, was uh, Tom King's Supergirl Woman of Tomorrow. Uh, I say I say most conspicuous because, while it was a very well-received run on Supergirl at the time it was published, uh, it's not really like a generation-spanning, unimpeachable, known classic like more Swamp Thing is, so... This is great because new readers are discovering some fantastic comics. Even experienced readers are discovering something like Woman of Tomorrow, but also because Gunn is purposefully plugging DC publications. Almost as if, <laughs> heaven forbid, the people making the movies actually want the source material and the business arm that creates it to not be liquidated into oblivion. That's refreshing. Uh, it's nice that... Uh, James Gunn actually might care whether or not DC still exists within the first couple of years of him owning the DCU. Uh, yeah. Uh, one outlet reporting on this kind of suggested that Gunn is using his new clout, his new position to become, to become kind of the mainstream nerd version of Oprah, like granting his seal of approval to shine a light on books with, with this newfound uh, position of power. And I got to say, it certainly is uh, comforting from my perspective. It's comforting once in a while to hear about how the comic books are influencing the comic book movies instead of the other way around. Uh, he's willing to go silly. He's willing to go weird. Uh, I talk a lot about how, for instance, that uh, 2011 Green Lantern movie, it really sent all the wrong messages to Warners uh, because... It bombed critically and commercially, and they took that as like, oh, well, I mean, that's weird. The Dark Knight movies are huge, and this really wasn't, and we poured a ton of money into it, so I guess audiences must hate the silly space shit, and they want super serious, gritty, adult superhero movies? Is that the thing? And no, no, that's not the case. Um, we just want good silly space shit that doesn't feel like it was dug up from a time capsule from 10 years previous. For a 2011 movie, it felt a whole lot like a 2002-2003 superhero movie. Uh, and that was the problem with it. That and it was just cut to ribbons and you could tell it was borderline incoherent in terms of its plot and character development. Uh, that was the problem. But... Uh, Gunn can deliver on stuff like that in a way that DC has never attempted since 2011 or so. Things like Green Lantern or Booster Gold. They haven't even attempted those characters because they're, they're terrified to try something that weird. And Booster Gold, I mean, that's a fan-favorite character. Um, but yeah, they, would, they wouldn't touch it because it'd become too silly, 
they would have to they'd have to you know faithfully recreate it without the market research people trying to zhuzh it up and sand off the edges and that would be too hard but now he's got kind of the you know with guardians of the galaxy and the suicide squad he's kind of proven no you don't have to make sure that this is a four quadrant movie i can make it weird and the people who will be put off by it probably wouldn't have come to see it anyway so that's not a problem anyways comic book sales are going up uh and they're going to continue to go up for DC once these movies start dropping, I think. Think about Guardians of the Galaxy again, you know? I mean, look, no one knew who the hell those characters were until about 2012, 2013, right? And no one bought Iron Man comics until about 2008. He was like a C-level hero. So think about this for a second. Picture a DC comic book lineup that doesn't depend directly on the sales of Superman, Batman, Harley Quinn and the Joker in order to survive. Doesn't that sound nice? Doesn't it sound great to hear that DC might actually get to use their much bigger bag of characters than they really ever utilize in the comics or the movies? Uh, let's talk about TV really quick and then we're out of here. Not terribly shocking TV news this week. Uh, Netflix renewed that 90s show because it did really good numbers for them the last two weeks. Allegedly. Uh, according to them. But in this case, I do actually believe them. I, do, I, I believe that that 90s show did good numbers. I think that first season's 10 episodes were a really easy binge. Uh, with it, like, you know, I mean, it has that double nostalgia dose. Um, yeah, it was, it was kind of a no-brainer hit. I mean, you heard me last week talk about it. I thought it was really fun. I enjoyed it. So, yeah, the second season is reported to be probably a lot larger in, in number of episodes. Not sure how many more, because more than 10 could mean 13 to 15. Or if they really want to make it feel like 90s nostalgia, like a 90s sitcom, they could do a full 20 to 24 episodes. They've never done anything like that before on Netflix, though, so that'd be new territory. I'm like this show's biggest supporter, but even I'm not sure it could sustain like 24 episodes a season because that's a lot and the cast of characters is pretty small but anyway this is good news i think i enjoyed the, the show so i want more of it uh i really don't want it to be canceled way before it actually hits a peak the way most shows on netflix are nowadays and this also doesn't mean that it's actually that safe because shows as we've talked about previously, shows get unrenewed all the time now. That's the new trend. So uh, let's keep operating on the fact that uh, season two of that 90s show doesn't exist until it's actually dropping. <laughs> Anyways, in other news, uh, similar news, um, Showtime is bereft of fresh material. Showtime, the, the cable, the premium cable, the, the poor man's HBO, if you will, uh, they have no ideas for what to do with fresh material. So they decide, what if young Dexter? <laughs> what if we did young Sheldon, but with Dexter? What would that look like? Well, it would look a lot like Dexter, only without having to deal with Michael C. Hall's ever-expanding paycheck to come back. Uh, <laughs> which I think is part of the plan. I think that's part of the design. Dexter Origins. No shit. 
Uh, that's the title they're going with, Dexter Origins. But that's not all. There's also going to be another season of that recent revival, Dexter New Blood, which would probably center on uh, Dexter's son Harrison and his murderous instincts uh, that are growing. Uh, and also, 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 some spinoffs about the more memorable season antagonists, like uh, John Lithgow's Trinity Killer from season four. What the hell is going on here? <laughs> What's going on, Showtime? Well, um, to answer that question, Showtime has recently been handed to an executive by the name of Chris McCarthy. You don't know that name? I don't know that name, but uh, you've heard of his work. He has established his bona fides uh, recently by being given a lot of credit for expanding Tyler Sheridan's Yellowstone the biggest show on cable television, if you can believe that, into its own universe of spinoffs for Paramount, uh, specifically Paramount+. Plus. I think they might be airing on the Paramount network as well. I don't know. I don't have cable. But, yeah, that's, that's what Chris McCarthy uh, has built his brand off of, is expanding Yellowstone into two spinoffs now, with, like, a third yet to come. So, concordingly, vis-a-vis... Ergo, uh, McCarthy is put in charge of Showtime, and he immediately says, Hey! Hey! <laughs> hey! What are our biggest hits? Uh, what are our biggest hit series on this network to date? Well, Dexter, and then Billions. Billions is actually, like, the longest-running uh, Showtime original. So, all the Dexter stuff I just said, and also multiple spinoffs of billions, including, but not limited to, I shit you not, millions, and trillions. <laughs> I feel ill. I feel unwell. Oh god, yuck. And also additionally, yikes. Uh, <laughs> millions and billions and trillions. <laughs> Ah, oh, man, this guy McCarthy is really cracking the code on how to apply that that cinematic universe chokehold to cable television that, that and, in, and in a way that doesn't even involve superheroes. I mean, hey, look, uh, partial credit for this Tums Festival that I just explained uh, probably should go to Greg Berlanti and as well as well as Dick Wolf back in the day. Uh, those guys pioneered the idea of let's just have five shows that all take place in the same world. So you got to watch a different one every night of the week. But doing that to Yellowstone was a strange choice and doing it to Dexter and Billions is, I'm going to be frank, a kind of concerning, frightening choice. Uh, on the other hand, the folks behind Billions just figured out how to bring Damian Lewis's character back without having to pay him. Prequel, baby! Millions! Ah, uh, whatever. Um, that's all the news I got for you this week. Uh, it was, uh, boy, it sure was a bag of news, wasn't it? <laughs> a bag of announcements, bag of developments, uh, a lot of, a lot of ins and outs, a lot of what have yous. But, um, thanks for tuning in and hanging out as always. I really appreciate my listeners checking in with me once a week to see what I feel about all this nonsense crap. This total crapshoot that is the entertainment industry. And hey, and hey, 
Uh, continue reading on the blog posts that are up at media-sandwich.com. Got recaps of Poker Face that are still coming. I'm a little behind on them. Work has been a little crazy the last week, but I'm going to catch up. And uh, some other stuff down the line. But until then, uh, until next week, I have been Kyle Martinak, and uh, I'm going to go get a sandwich.